for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Hey, today we are talking about how to be more effective in anything that we're doing. And my guest is Elena Love, who is a business consultant. She is the author of a book about finding and deploying your your passion at work. And it's probably not what you think, because I thought your passion was, oh, I love animals or I love sports or I love playing the cello. And how am I going to make a living at that? And she's talking about something quite different, which is our passions involve how we interact with our work, how we interact with ourselves, how we interact with other people. And to bring it home, um, what we did was we recorded actually me taking a passion profiler, uh, an assessment that she's developed. And then she talked me through it. And so it's specific to me, but I think it provides really useful information uh, about what this idea is of passion and why I like doing certain things and why certain things like even though I feel like, oh, I should be doing it or I should like it or I should be good at it. Just leave me cold. So this is for everyone who wants to be more impactful, effective, sustainable at the work you do in the world, whether it's health, whether it's animal advocacy, whether it's environmental advocacy, whether it's just running a business and, um, you know, raising a family or having friends, being part of a neighborhood group, whatever. So the first part of our conversation is the one we recorded after. So it's sort of a um, an introduction to this idea of passion at work and why it's so important. And then we jump into my passion profiler. So I hope you will find this as useful as I do. So without further ado, Elena Love, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Howie. It's great to be with you as always. Yeah, this is kind of a, a fun introduction because we've already conducted um, an assessment. You, you did the uh, passion profiler assessment on me, which people are going to be seeing or listening to shortly after this. And we we hadn't planned for that to be recorded. I just said like, oh my God, this is so interesting, not just for me, but for people. But now we, we got to back up and let people know kind of who you are, what you do. So maybe just start with the elevator speech. Like if someone oh says, what do you do? I always find it hard to give an elevator pitch because I look back on what do I do? And I see this, this trajectory of my life going, how did I get to where I am from there? <laughs> it's yeah, kind of, the long, the long elevator. Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of in what it's like. But, you know, in a, in a nutshell, if I just take this period of my life or the last 10, 20 years of my life, I've been doing leadership and team development work with um, companies all over the world. And the focus of my work has largely been helping individuals inside organizations understand their passions. And I, I use a tool that I developed called the Passion Profiler as the mechanism for evaluating what mm -hmm. someone's top three passions are. The idea being that if we can, um, as leaders, if we understand the passions of the people, people working for and with us, we'll do a much better job of leveraging not just their skill set when they apply it to a particular piece of work that needs to get done, but also their passions, kind of like giving them another uh, are, are giving ourselves or the organization the benefit of having them put on another set of lenses that allow them to see the world in, in more stereoscopic ways. So um, it's been you know, just an incredibly interesting and fun journey when I think about it, because I, I get to see people developing a language for 
who they are at their very best. So it's, it's, you know, it's celebratory and exciting. And then I get to see teams working together with one another and understanding, oh, that's why you think that way. Or that's why you had that reflection on that project we were working on that we all thought was weird. But it's really not weird because you're looking at it through your passions. And that's giving you a diverse perspective about this that we otherwise wouldn't have had. So it starts to help them really appreciate one another and very valuable. So when I think about like working with teams, I don't think about like, what are our passions? I think about who's screwing up. (laughs) I think about who's inappropriate. I think about who's not getting along with whom. I think about what processes do we need to improve? How can we make our meetings better? How did you hit upon passion as an ingredient in helping teams and organizations be more successful? Well, I would have to say that that takes us back even earlier um, in in the trajectory. Um, It really goes back to my own experience Um, as an individual who was very successful working in corporate level roles inside a multi-billion dollar organization. And feeling like when I first joined the organization, like I was going to be a lifer, like there was absolutely no way I was ever going to leave this company because the company was huge. There was lots of different opportunities to get um, involved in different things. And so I couldn't possibly get bored. And then there came a time in my career where I started to feel like I was good at what I was doing. I was being recognized for what I was doing, but I felt largely unfulfilled by what I was doing. And that led me to the sense of restlessness inside myself, the sense of kind of feeling like I, I'm not feeling passion for, for this work I'm doing. And I'm not feeling that it's somehow tied to a deeper purpose that I'm here to achieve. And, and I was at a point in my life where I really started to look for that. I really wanted to just not have a job because it was an economic means to an end. I wanted to have a job that was a profound expression of who I am in some way, shape or form. But I didn't know what that was. You know, so I made you know, the craziest decision that anybody could make, which was leave a good job when you didn't have a plan B. And, um, and after doing that, I wrestled with, was, was I alone or were there other people who felt like me, who had that same sense of restlessness and disconnection from who they were and what they were doing and yet were successful. These were people who by and large, their companies valued and wanted and thought of as the future for the organization. And that's really what led me to trying to dissect this question that I was holding inside myself. Uh, you know, the, the question that would have allowed me to feel like I know what to tell the organization I need so that I can give the organization what it needs from me in the very best way possible. And I didn't have that answer. And then at, at some point it really came to me that there's a deep connection between the purpose that we're here to achieve and how that gets expressed outwardly by the passions that we demonstrate. And when I realized that connection, that's when I felt like Eureka, I've got it. So my job is really to figure out how to codify and how to measure passion. And if I can do that, we've got a sight line to the deeper purpose that drives people. So I'm imagining some people are listening to this and rolling their eyes Mm. and saying like, oh, goody for you 
that you think you need to be fulfilled in your work. Like the rest of us just need to hold down a job. And if we like what we're doing, that's awesome. If we don't suck it up, but like fulfilling your mission in the world is like a luxury that almost nobody gets. And when I look at the world and I look at how, you know, at people that I know, very few people would say I'm living my passion. Like I, I, yeah, there's annoying parts of my job and parts that I, I'm not so good at, but basically this is an expression of who I'm meant to be in the world. It's so rare. What, what in you like said, I want more and I deserve more and the world deserves more than, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you're, you're pointing out a, a problem so endemic that it almost doesn't look like a problem. You know, Howie, it's, it's, it, what you've asked is a great question, and why me, and why do I get to even think this way? And I guess when I reflect on it, and I, and I think back to that time when I was wrestling with, you know, these decisions about my own life, what I felt most was in every fiber in my being that staying where I was was the wrong choice, that it would not lead me to what I needed to be doing or what I could best contribute in the world. And interestingly, you know, you say that, you know, the rest of us have to suck it up and just do what we have to do to make a living. Interestingly, when I, when I started to unpack this question, my, my first instinct was to go back to my research roots. I'm a research scientist by training. So um, that, you know, sort of science nerd hat came back out again when I started wrestling with this question and said, you know, wonder if there are any studies on it. Has anybody looked at this? You know, am I the only one feeling this way? And I actually decided to put together a study um, and interview um, very ex extensive qualitative interviews with some quantitative pieces to it. I interviewed people who were deemed by their organizations to be high potential. And what I found almost universally is that no one there said to me, I really want to be insignificant. That's okay for me. <laughs> and mm -hmm. let me just get a paycheck. Every one of them wanted to feel like what they did with those 85 plus thousand hours that we spend at work. They wanted to feel like they were doing something meaningful, that somehow it mattered that they were there, that there was a difference they were somehow contributing to making or, or directly responsible for making. And, um, and that in doing so, there, there was a, a level of reward that they were receiving from that experience that money just couldn't trump. And, and that reward was fulfillment. And yeah, what did those people tell me? Oh, listen, every single moment of every single day that I'm at work, I'm ecstatic. Absolutely not. There were parts of their jobs that they didn't particularly like. The difference was they recognized the parts of their job that were aligned with who they are. And so when they were performing those things at work, they could they had a direct sight line between what they were doing and who they were. And the work then felt like an expression of self rather than just this piece of work that I have to go get accomplished. And they poured them their whole selves into it and they produced a better outcome as a result. And I think we all deserve that. I mean, we all deserve that feeling of, I'm not just punching a clock, you know, I'm not just here to do something that doesn't matter that I, that I, it matters that I'm here and I, each of us, and I really truly believe this, each of us has something 
profound to contribute, even in the simplest, smallest way. You know, it's like throwing a pebble in a pond, there's a ripple. And we get to make a difference in our, in our own right. And I've seen this in people in very sophisticated jobs where there was high levels of education and experience the person had to do it. And I've seen this same uh, understanding and behavior expressed in individuals who were in jobs that you, you might say are menial, mopping floors, you know, you know, cleaning windows, whatever the case may be. These folks were doing things and had found a way within those roles to do it in a way where they felt like they were making a bigger contribution other than keeping that floor clean. Mm. They got it. They really got the connection. So what are the costs of people not living and working according to their passions? And let's start with the costs to the individuals themselves. You know, well, yeah, I guess there's misery, but you know, they're like, I know lots of people who are like addicted to things or like the money is the only thing that matters. Like, what, what do you see in terms of the costs to, to the individuals? It's actually pretty staggering. Um, on an individual basis, you know, they've done a lot of work around this. There's a whole field called positive psychology and there are people who actually get paid to study happiness, which I think is like a super cool job, right? Um, but the, the, you know, the work shows that when you are in a situation where you're working from a place where you're not experiencing um, an, ex an opportunity to express your passions in your work, you're not experiencing the kind of fulfillment that, that money can't buy through the work that you're doing, you have a much higher likelihood of being diagnosed with depression. So when you talk about people being addicted to things, people are addicted to all kinds of things to self-medicate from what they're feeling uh, or, or what they wish they could feel that they don't, right? There, there are studies that have proven that um, working in, in those ways also contributes to um, how your cells divide and how the chromos your chromosomes are impacted in that cellular, di cellular division and whether or not parts of the chromosome that are normally worn away when, when cellular division occurs are actually regenerated. And in people who are working in, in, that, in that way, parts of their DNA aren't regenerated in the way that they should be. And though that lack of regeneration is what leads to things like stress-related illnesses heart disease, diabetes, et cetera. It's all contributing factors to it and it's happening at the cellular level. Even more frightening, those same studies prove that you pass those shortened uh, uh, chromosomes onto your offspring. So it's not just you. When you're having a bad day, when you're having a lousy life, it's not just you that it affects, it's any offspring that you produce. There are other studies one in particular that I believe was done in Germany, if I'm not mistaken, if it's either Germany or Spain, where they actually looked at the impact of parents, one or, one or, one or both parents who were unhappy at work and how when they were unhappy at work, despite the fact that they thought they were keeping it from their family and they were sort of sucking it up every day, doing what they needed to do, and it wasn't impacting anybody but them, they actually found that those children of those parents were much more likely to act out at school and get in trouble. So even though we think, you know, I'm, I got this, I'll just suck it up. I'll just keep doing it. We can't, we don't get to make that decision just for ourselves. If we're involved in any relationship with anybody else that cares about us, right? Because we're impacting others too mm -hmm. with that choice. Mm -hmm. So 
I think that the the impact's tremendous on, on an organizational level. It's huge. I mean, the the amount of um, lost productivity in a, in any given year from people who are actively disengaged with their work, which is what happens when you are doing things constantly that aren't fueling you in any way, is somewhere in the neighborhood of four hundred fifty to five hundred fifty billion dollars a year just in the United States, just in one year alone, just from people who are actively disengaged. So it's a, it's a huge, you know, it's a huge financial impact. It's a huge emotional impact. This is not small stuff and it's not soft stuff. Mm. So let's, let's close this part of the conversation that will lead into the, uh, the assessment conversation by just helping us understand what passions are. Because when I ask people like, what are your passions? They'll say things like, you know, NCAA basketball or you know, dogs or saving the environment or windsurfing, but that's, that's not the level that you're talking about when you say passion, right? No, no. What, what, I, what I describe in my work are what I call uh, 10 archetypes of passion. And we all have all 10 of those in us to greater or, le- or lesser degrees. They're not something that you can find in the health and beauty aisle of your local Walmart. They're things that are already existing inside of you. And the trick is really to discover which three of those 10 passions are the ones that you operate with? And they, they are very simply, and I'll just name them. They're creator, conceiver, discoverer, processor, teacher, connector, altruist, healer, transformer, and builder. And all of us, as I said, have all 10 of those in us to greater or lesser degrees. But you know through the assessments that I do and through that, the, the deep sort of in, internalizing of your results, which ones are really yours? And you, you tend to learn which of the three that you have as your top three are really driving the bus. You know, some are directing the traffic, others are behind the wheel of your life, kind of directing ultimately where that bus gets pointed and, and, and the road you take to get to the next stop. So it's really... Um, it's, it's fascinating to understand about yourself and it is celebratory and also very affirming. Most people feel when they get their results, like, ah, yeah, I kind of, you know, I kind of thought that about myself, but I didn't really have the words for it. Now mm-hmm. I do. And armed with that information, it's kind of, in my opinion, it's like having an internal GPS. Like you can figure out, do I go road A? Do I go road B? Do I enter this relationship or that relationship? Because the big question becomes, is there going to be an opportunity for me to utilize my skills in that situation? Am I going to be in an environment that honors my values in that situation? And there's, is there going to be a playground for my passions? And if you can answer yes to those three, run and quickly in that direction, because mm-hmm. you're probably going to find a lot of fulfillment on the other side of it. Awesome. I think that's a great introduction to the, the conversation we, we had a while back, which people are now going to listen to. Is there anything else that you think would help set the table? Uh, I think we've covered it. I think what I would suggest to people is that embracing this requires maybe for some people a mindset shift. In my opinion, we're just not in in, in a world anymore where we can choose to play small. We're in a world with challenges that are calling on all of us to be at our very best, to to contribute at our highest level. And I believe we do that 
when we're doing it from a place of passion, because then it's not hard, right? Then it doesn't, you know, while it may be intense, while you may put in long hours, it doesn't feel like drudgery. Mm. It feels like I'm getting to make a difference here in some way, shape or form. So I think I encourage people to, to, to think about this and to think about themselves and to, to believe they're worthy of knowing this information about themselves and of practicing it in their lives. And, and, and if we all do that, we make a much bigger difference in a much increasingly complicated and challenging world. And I, and I think we can collectively make a difference in it if we work from that place. Nice. If I could just reflect back something I just thought of from my own trajectory. So I you know, got into the health field in a professional way, thanks to the opportunity to co-write a couple of books. And the books were about nutrition and science. And they were sort of fact-based and they were arguing against common existing paradigms. And so as a result, like um, the exposure that those gave me was basically the exposure to be a debater, like mm-hmm. to go and, and tell people that they're wrong. <laughs> and, and that's what I started doing. Like, I'm, you know, like the, the podcast and, and the work I was doing was all about, here's what you should do. Here's what you should eat. Here's what you shouldn't eat. Here's why those people are wrong. Here's what's wrong with that study. And, and the, you know, the, the bigger passion was like, I want people to be healthy. I want the environment to heal. I want people to be empowered. Like it was really good places. And I hated being the debater. Hmm. Right. Like it just, it just did not fit. And if I felt bad when I won, air quotes, <laughs> you know, because I, I just felt like mean and very superior and narcissistic. And a lot of times people would come up with things and I'm like, oh, I don't know the answer to that. And I felt bad because I'd lost. Right. Like and, and at some point it was like, oh, I just, I just don't like this way of interacting with the world, with knowledge, where it's like, you know, but there are other people like my co-authors who continue to do it and love it. Mm -hmm. Like, so it it became clear that like, like, you know, well before I'd ever thought about like these particular 10 passion archetypes, like this is not a good fit for me, even though doing it bring, would bring the world what I have to offer sort of. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why it becomes really so important to understand that about yourself, because there are, there's more than one route to bringing the world what it is you, you want to offer. There's not just one way. And when you think of the fact that you have three top passions to operate from, and they are somehow associated with the deeper purpose that you're here to achieve, what you come to understand is that there are myriad ways in which you might express that purpose throughout your lifetime. And those passions just become a tool for it. So if you find that you're in a situation that doesn't play to those passions, look for another way, because there always is one, right? Look for another way that feels more more authentically you. You'll be better at it. Your message will be clearer. You'll influence more people. They'll embrace what you have to say. They'll want to hear what you'll have to say because you're speaking from an authentic place where you feel comfortable that you are being you while you're doing it. Great. So let's um, let's go to the tape. Um, before we do, though, tell us again your name, your company, how people can find you and follow your work and, and any Thank books you mentioned. Thank you. I'm Elena Love. I'm the CEO of Purpose Linked Consulting. You can find out more about the company at 
thepurposelink.com, thepurposelink.com. Uh, you can look for my book, which I think you see over my shoulder there, The Purpose Linked Organization. Um, that's available uh, right on our website. When you go to the homepage, you'll see information about it there. I hope you'll also look for my articles in Smart Brief on Leadership. I write a monthly column uh, on all different kinds of leadership topics. And so I'd love to you know, have you take a look at it, weigh in, send me your thoughts and comments. And, and where do people find that? That's at smartbrief.com. The Smart Brief on Leadership column. All right. Well, thanks for, for jumping back on the Zoom with me. Now let's, uh, let's give people the, the taste of what you do. Perfect. It was great seeing you again, Howie. You too. Okay. So here's Howie. Ta-da. Hey. <laughs> Put you up here. Anyway. Um, so you understand the basic context of the instrument and what, what it's measuring from what we talked about last week. Um, mm -hmm. Right. But I just really want to reiterate it because it's so easy to say, oh, this is like Myers-Briggs or, oh, this is like this instrument or that instrument. And it really the, is. The thing it reminded me of most was the Colby. Okay. Which one? The learning style? Colby A. It was like cognitive styles. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was you know, very different um, dimensions, but it was like, this is what you want. This is what you like doing. Yes. And this is a little bit... Um, you know, it may align with stuff you like doing, um, and but there's like and there's really super passionate about, um, and and there's 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 like enjoy dabbling in and and like wow this is really connected to what I think I'm here to do in life, right? Mm -hmm. We're kind of on that side. Mm -hmm. like, what are the what are the underlying passions that you have? that result from the deeper purpose that's driving you. That's what we're trying to get at here. And as I said last week, we're getting at purpose through the back door because trying to you know, wrap your arms around this very esoteric concept called purpose is difficult. And if, if it wasn't, somebody would have done it well by now. This uh -huh. is as close as I think I'm going to get to it, which is okay. to connect the passions that emanate because of that purpose and figure out a way to codify those and measure those, which is exactly what this instrument is doing. Uh-huh. Um, Actually, before before we continue, I just had a thought, okay. which is I definitely want to have you on my podcast to okay. talk about your work. Okay. And this this feels like this would be a good thing to share with people, yes. like as an example. And I'm pretty open about it. And um, so, if are you okay with with us proceeding on that basis sure. that this this could be a published thing and it will explain how this works and help help people who don't understand me understand me better. <laughs> Sure, absolutely. Are you thinking to use this actual recording as part of it? Or are you thinking I yeah. do something separate? Yeah, no, you like using this. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm fine with it if you're comfortable. It's your it's your confidential information. So Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm business casual. I'm wearing clothes. <laughs> well, that's a shift. Good. Thank you. Glad you got the memo on that one, Howie. Um, and it but it's a podcast. Who cares? They can't see you, right? <laughs> Well, I put this on YouTube as well. So oh, okay. Well, you watch. have to rest this time then. Okay, so, perfect. Yeah. So, um, so at any rate, one of the you know things that I'm really particularly interested in around this notion of passion is understanding the deep drivers of it in an individual. Um, because I, like you, I, I've been in situations in jobs and and even in relationships where I was kind of good at them and successful in them by outward measures. 
but I wasn't happy deep down in them. Mm. Um, and, and you can be good at a whole lot of things that you're not particularly passionate about. And we get ourselves stuck when we think, oh, I'll just look for this next thing that is like the past thing that I've been good at without really thinking about, am, am I more than good at it? Is there a deeper underlying driver for me that makes me want to engage in that particular activity or with that particular person or set of people or in that particular culture? All of those things are really driven by our passions. So, so does, does this assume um, in, that intrinsic motivation is the key? Because like if I'm just good at stuff and I'm getting like there was there was a bunch of years where I was good at stuff and I was getting paid well for it and acknowledged and thanked. And for a while, that felt like enough mm-hmm. until it wasn't. Yep. Same so for me. Is- exact same for me. In fact, that's how this particular instrument got birthed. I got to the point where I was being given this wonderful opportunity and told I was in the succession plan to replace my boss who was reporting to the CEO. It was a multinational, multi-billion dollar company. That should have been good news. Mm. But I remember feeling like, I don't think I want the job. I don't think I want the job. And yet it was a job I thought I had been working for for many years to to be worthy of achieving. Uh So it's interesting when what you think you want gets presented to you and you realize it, it really isn't about that at all for me. But my problem was I didn't know what it was about. I just knew mm-hmm. that what I had come there to do and to learn I had completed. And I needed to feel a deeper connection, a more purposeful connection between the hours, which were many that I was spending doing work and what I was getting from them in terms of fulfillment. And fulfillment was more than monetary reward for me. So yeah, it absolutely has to do with that. And, and, you know, you are, you're motivated to engage in things that you feel passion, where your passions have an outlet, ultimately. And so understanding the passion archetypes that you enjoy is kind of like having your own Google Maps takes you anywhere it is you think you want to go, and the directions are really clear and straightforward, and there's no traffic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no red line not even any yellow line. You understand exactly where, where it is you're going. So that's really the in, intent here. Um, and as I was sharing with you in the past, I'm not as interested in measuring your skills as I am in measuring the things that might cause you to want to develop certain skills. Mm-hmm. That's far more interesting to me. And, and your passions really lay the foundation for that exact thing. It, it will... You know, you can you can have a particular passion and find that there's an outlet for that passion. And there's a set of skills associated with expressing that passion and that outlet that you don't yet have. But because it's so exciting to you to be able to have the chance to do that particular thing, you'll go out and, you know, get yourself trained up, learn, read books, you know, try to uh, develop a, a set of skills that match the opportunity to express that, that passion. Hmm. Even, so, even if even if having using some of those skills or learning to some of those skills are kind of the opposite of what that passion feels like, right? Like if I want to if I want to start a business as a floral arranger, mm-hmm. I still I have to learn bookkeeping. Like the passion can get me to learn, even though bookkeeping has nothing to do with art or design or creativity. Exactly. 
I mean, when I think about the work that I do, and I have a great alignment between my passions and how I operate in the work environment. Um, and, and what's interesting about it is that even with that, there are aspects of my work, my job that I'm not particularly passionate about, you know, back to bookkeeping, for example, right? It's, you know, it doesn't thrill me to have to do taxes. You know, I do know people who love it. I'm not one of them. So, you know, I learned to do things that are required. So I get to do this other really great thing. Uh-huh. fulfilling to me. And over time, I learned which things I can offload to someone who's got better skills at it than I do. And which things I can, you know, take on and continue to do myself, even though they not, might not be exactly in the zone of my passions, because there's enough time out of my day where I'm, I'm, I'm living in that space of expressing my passions in a meaningful way and getting the fulfillment from that expression, mm-hmm. that it gives me the energy to do the other stuff that's not as much fun. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. There's, there's a balancing that goes on. And what happens, I think, far too often is we're balanced on the side of the drudgery you know, or, or imbalanced, leaning on, onto the side of the drudgery, and there's not enough of the side of where we look at what we're doing and say, hey, man, I get to be me in this work. I get to do me in, in this part of what I do every single day. And, and that's such a high to be able to feel that. So a lot of times we don't understand if we, if we have the opportunity to do that, because we don't know, we don't know what our passions are. So we don't really have a language that could help us have a conversation with the person we're reporting to about what we'd like, the way in which we'd like to contribute that maybe we're not contributing currently based on how we're being asked to work. Um, We don't have a a clear enough understanding of it in our minds so that we can start to shape the environments that we're in. Because I do believe when you're passionate, you tend to shape the environment you're experiencing Mm. to bring more opportunities for those passions to have an outlet. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. understanding what they are, what they look like, you know, what's the roadmap? How do I get there? And, and that's what this tool and this work is designed to help people to. Hmm. And it's funny because in a way, and I want to get to my uh, thing so we can give people an example of it. But you know, for, for me, it reminds me very much of the kind of co- cohesive attention to the individual that a traditional indigenous community, a tribe would have where when the baby's born, everybody is interested in what gifts it has for the community. Right. And they'll, you know, the elders will dream and the shamans will smoke and dance and drum. And, the, you know, it's expected that, the, you know, nature, the beast, the winds, the plants will tell this, will give this child information. And by the time the child is, you know, an adult, they know their role in the community and everyone knows their role and everyone knows that they're part of their role is to nurture everyone else to learn their role. And here we have, you know, I don't, I don't know if you've ever done the numbers or if anyone's ever done the numbers, but if you ask people in, in the workplace, um, how, what percentage of the time do you get to be you? I imagine it's extremely low. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would be um, my guesstimation from the number of people that I've had that conversation with. Um, and one could argue maybe people are having that conversation with me because my, my whole body of work is around helping you be you and what you do. But um, I think people struggle with that pretty regularly. They struggle with navigating these large institutional systems that, that we exist within and trying to figure out where do I fit in this and, and how can I 
um, be me rather than donning the corporate costume and going in and pretending to be someone that I'm not every day so that I can, you know, feed that beast of three meals a day that I've become accustomed to. Um, you know, it, 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 it is, it's tough for many of us, but I do believe, honestly, that as I look at my work and how it has evolved over the last, I'd say easily over the last decade, I've seen a tremendous shift in people being not only more willing, but more insistent on asking that question about their own lives and their, and, and the way they're showing up in it. And because, um, because we'll spend more than 85,000 hours of our lives at work in our lifetime. And that's a gross underestimation because most people are not working just a 40 hour week. Um, I think people are much more inclined to want to understand how to make that experience of those hours a much more meaningful and fulfilling one where they're not just involved in something that helps to meet an economic means to an end, but is actually something that um, allows them to deliver and experience meaning um, on a day-to-day basis. Mm. So I think, I think we're seeing a shift in, in just in overall consciousness about this particular issue. Um, and certainly I can say, Howie, that since the pandemic, I'm seeing that even more like big ex- existential questions are being asked by folks mm. about their lives, about where they're headed, about why about how to be more, more fully connected with who they believe they are here to be. Um, and um, maybe a sense of um, the limitations of the runway, so to speak. We don't have an endless runway ahead of us. You know, today's the youngest we're ever gonna be. And so that sense of, I don't have forever to figure this out. I think I'm hearing from a lot of people as well. Um, and if, where they are is not leading to answers that are are aligned with where they think they want to be. I believe that people are now being brave enough to consider making some major changes in their lives in order to get to the point where it feels like they're on the road to a more fulfilling existence, a more meaningful existence going forward. You know, it's interesting. I was um, looking at some data that um, that we'd uh, taken out of the passion profiler system a couple of years ago. And we had a study done by the psychology department at Monmouth University in New Jersey. Um, and one of the significant findings that came out of that study was the increasing desire for meaning as we age. It certainly, it certainly came up in the data in our system where we measure the importance of passion to someone and the importance of the, having the ability to express it. And, and, and we, see, we see that increase um, with age, but there's, there's a, bit of a, mm, a bit of a trough that we tend to experience. Maybe when we're you know, 18 to 24, you know, we're fa- fairly enthusiastic about, about that somewhere in our late twenties and into our thirties and down into our fifties, we start to trough out. And then, you know, after our our mid fifties or so, we start coming back up. And then when we get to, you know, age 60 and beyond, it's all about that. It's, you know, it's about finding meaning. It's about purpose. It's about having a sense and deriving a sense of fulfillment from the relationships we're engaged in and the work that we do. Um, 
And it, it tracks with data that's been published in other studies that's showing basically that happiness is a U-shaped curve, right? So, so if you think you're at the bottom of the trough, the good news is you're probably coming out of it. <laughs> you're probably going to be on the other side of it. Um, and this particular body of work helps individuals understand um, directionally how they might find and navigate their way up out of that trough or maybe even smooth, in, smooth out the depth of the trough for them. So that um, I, I feel like your work is extremely subversive in, in <laughs> yeah. that, you know, certainly in a corporate setting where like, if you look at almost every company, how they try to reward performance is through extrinsics as mm-hmm. you know, through money perks, the corner office, the title, the parking, the jet, you know, whatever, as opposed to really what we understand, what we know motivates people around purpose and autonomy and contribution and passion. And the other thing is that, that, you know, I would argue that we, in our sixties, and so we like to, to ask about the meaning of our lives is subversive in the context of this culture, which is just trying to sell us more and more stuff to, to be happy. And I, you know, I, th- I think that, I don't know if we, how, how global or cross-cultural the data is, but I find it suspicious that the trough occurs in Western capitalist countries where people are forced into making a living. You know, I can imagine societies where it's just, it just keeps going up because you're always encouraged to grow your passions for the, for the sake of others. I think that's probably true in certain, and I'd say the more small subcultures in our world. I, and it's certainly true if you're living in a culture where people have about the same amount as you do, right? So if you're, if you're, if you're talking about a relatively poor societies, right? Everybody's just about as poor as I am. So there's no, you know, stark comparison that I can make between you've got this and I don't as much as we see here in the United States. So while that curve may exist, the curve is not as deep. The trough is not as deep in, the, in those um, environments. So I, I, think you're, I think you're right. But to your point about organizations, Howie, um, organizations are, I believe, recognizing that what was fulfilling or enough for employees in the past isn't working or isn't going to work for the future. Um, it's kind of that, what, what, what was the book we were talking about the other day? What, what got you here won't get you there. And that uh, we were talking about Marshall Goldsmith writing. And, and, and that's the, the same is true for organizations. What got them here won't get them there um, in terms of uh, understanding and capitalizing on, on this competitive advantage that I call passion. I think that we've got a generation We've got how many generations, four generations in the workforce right now. We have um, generations in the workforce whose philosophy about what work is supposed to be and the experience they're supposed to have from it is very different, you know, from how our parents might have thought about what work was about. Work was, you know, put your head down, do the right thing, don't get in trouble, get your paycheck, and please stay with that company for your whole career, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, was, that was a good life. You could retire have a company pension, et cetera. And then you'd know that that meant that you had been successful. We have generations in the workforce right now for whom meaning really matters. And we have the, probably the youngest generation in the workforce that we have raised and we've told, you know, find something that you feel passionate about and make that your career and you'll be happy. 
And they, if there's stuff they didn't listen to us about, that stuff they listened to. And we did not change the locks on the doors. So when they try something and it doesn't work out, they come back home, crash at your place, figure out what the next thing is they're going to go try because they have the ability to do it because we've provided that opportunity to them to do it. Because on some level, we feel like we didn't do it. And Mm -hmm. so what do most parents want to do? You want to give your kids the chance you didn't have to pursue the life that is that you wanted to have. And these uh, folks in the workforce now are, have taken it extremely seriously. It's not just about finding something that they're passionate about to do as a job. They want to find their passion and build their life around it. That's a tall order. So that's one end of the generational spectrum. At the other end, we've got, you know, a group of baby boomers, many of whom were impacted by the variety of um, stock market issues that we've experienced over the last 20 years who don't have the 401ks they thought they were going to have, aren't perhaps still not in the situation where they can retire with the amount of money they thought they were going to be able to retire with. And so they're making decisions to work longer. And in making those decisions to work longer, they're now faced with, okay, I'm going to do this for another five years, but is it going to be a salt mind experience? Or am I actually going to be able to do some work that I find meaningful and enjoyable. And so they're starting to seek different things because they feel like, yeah, I paid my dues. I've done all that stuff, followed all the protocol that I was supposed to follow. Can I spend this next you know, number of years at least doing something that I love and that also pays me well? And so you've got kind of tension at both end, ends of the generational spectrum. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a confluence of self-actualization happening big time. Um, And companies that get that and really understand that, you know, at some level, there will always be a a level of financial reward that people expect to receive, but there's more, there's more than that, that's going to make folks happy. And, and, And as a leader, if I can understand for each person that's on my team, what it is they're looking for, what it is they need and how through the work I have to get done, I can help to feed that. I'm going to have an incredibly engaged team producing phenomenal results. I'm going to understand as my business evolves, what are the implied passion characteristics of these roles that I see evolving in the future that are different from what they are today? And and do I have folks who have those passions, right? Or am I just, you know, tapping the usual suspects on the head and saying, okay, he's going to be ready in a year. We're going to have him succeed to exposition because that's what we've always done. So. Yeah. The image that comes to me is like Shakespearean theater back in, you know, uh, Elizabethan England where all the parts had to be played by men. (laughs) Versus like now you could have, you could have women actors, you could have actors of color, you could have people actually playing roles that they're right for. You could have trans actors. Like, it's like, like corporate America is still sort of a little bit Elizabethan. I love it. I love it. I hadn't thought of that analogy, but it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. So, so this, you know, what, what I do with this work really is, is, is on an individual level, the kinds of things we've already spoken about, but on an organizational level, helping the organization really appreciate the, the, passion constellation available to it within its workforce to really make cool stuff happen in their business, in their market, et cetera. And, um, and it's a whole body of knowledge 
that's always been at the fingertips of the leaders in the organizations, but there wasn't a way to understand it and utilize it. And this, this allows them to do that and takes you into much more meaningful conversations and examinations of the business and of what the business is going to need going forward. And, you know, how do we go about sourcing and nurturing those individuals and helping them grow and develop in the organization so that they are available for the positions of the future. And the future is really on the horizon. I mean, there, there's no long-term, you know, 10 years from now, this is what we're gonna look like. 10 years from now, there will be jobs that don't even exist today that we can't even imagine, right? So the way in which we look at the body of talent that exists within an organization has to be not just what do we need today, but evolutionarily, what are things gonna look like two years from now? three years from now, how, how far can I imagine and how accurately can I imagine um, what is going to change? And then what does that say about the passions I'm really going to need on this team? Because all of everybody's passions offer them a different perspective on how they implement strategies, how they solve problems. It's, and it's, it's like having the ability to practice this notion of inclusion and diversity, like right at your fingertips, because every time you ask somebody whose passions are different from your own, what they think, how they see something, you're getting another perspective on that issue that you're not going to naturally arrive at because that's not the set of lenses that you're looking at the world through. Mm. So just, it's exciting and cool work. Right. And the other thing is, you know, you mentioned competitive advantage. Mm. I like to think there's a cooperative advantage to like, we're, we're trying to solve big problems. The, pro the problems are not just how does X corporation um, come in with a, with a really good quarterly report? The mm -hmm. question is how do we you know, save human life on the planet? How do we create a, a society that's just, you know, how do we give good things to our children? And like your, your, your instrument, the passion profiler is very um, skewed toward the positive. Like all of the, like all of the, uh, all of the archetypes are positive. You don't have like the torturer, <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't have the asshole. Right. Yeah. People ask me, is jerk an archetype? And I was like, well, not in this particular instrument. Um, and this instrument's not designed to, um, to reveal a pathology <laughs> necessarily. <laughs> in your perspective, it's a pathology. It's not a a natural flowering of the human spirit. Exactly. What you're here are natural flowerings. And if people, if, if people have the language to talk about them, like there'd be certain companies and certain industries that probably would go out of business. Like how can you have a bunch of healers and transformers and builders making bombs? You know, like it wouldn't make any sense. Probably wouldn't be something that people with those archetypes would be drawn to do, right? And, and, and at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is help people understand and celebrate the very best that they can be. And so, yes, the instrument is positively skewed because we're trying to look at people from their very best, right? We, we obviously um, identify, you know, what the shadow side can be, i.e. the vulnerability someone can struggle with if they have particular archetypes. But we also highlight what are the strengths that archetype imbues you with that you can really take advantage of. And the trick in really understanding all of this 
is in recognizing that it's not just about knowing what your passions are, it's about mastering them. And mastering them means you recognize the situations where your strengths can come out and play. You also recognize the situations that might trigger you exhibiting a vulnerability so that you can enter those situations far more knowledgeable and far more prepared than you would be if you're just walking along waiting for the rocks to fall on top of your head. Um, So, we want at the end of the day, people to have a language that allows them to describe themselves in that way and be able to say, here's how I can contribute. You know, here's what makes my heart sing. And these are the things I see. This is what I can bring to this team. This is how I view the world. And, and um, you know, th- these are my superpowers. So I, I always tell folks, you know, if there's a particular passion that you don't have a high score in, so what? That's okay. You have the passions that you have. And what you want to do is understand them well, understand where you are exhibiting them in your life or where you have in the past, make that connection in your brain. Ah, when I get to do this particular activity, this activity triggers the expression of this passion and the expression of this passion in all of its greatest strengths so that you can lean more into those situations or create them for yourself, create those opportunities to express those for yourself. Great. All right, let's talk about me. Okay. <laughs> All right, so I wanna to go to you because you have this really interesting, we looked, we've looked at your graph before, your passion archetype graph, but I really wanna to go to this one, um, which is showing me kind of the mosaic of, of who you are, um, Howie, and you have, three archetypes of relationship in your top cluster. We always look at not just, you know, obviously how somebody um, measures against all 10 of the archetypes, which we looked at on the previous page, where are you against all 10? But I'm particularly interested in what your top three are. Um, Because the top three passions that somebody types with gives me a really good idea of how they're wired of the environments in which they're likely to thrive of the situations in which, you know, those particular passions are going to have the greatest playing field to be expressed. And it also gives me a sense of the energy of this person. And you have the energy of relationship and you have the energy of deep caring um, and you have the energy of knowledge sharing and the energy of passion for change. Um, as part of who you are. So you type as a teacher, a transformer and a healer. So, and, and I don't know which of these are most important to you because it may not necessarily be that the one that's in your first position in your cluster is the one that's most driving for you. For all of us, it's different. Um, so I don't get tied up in what's first, second and third. I'm far more interested in what the combination of archetypes are in that cluster. Um, with your teacher archetype, this is the side of you that, uh, and, and I've experienced you, you this way, you love learning, you love new knowledge, you love new insights, you're probably very comfortable traversing across different disciplines and finding ways that you make the, you know, connect the dots between, as you said early, Elizabeth, earlier, Elizabethan theater and corporate leadership mentality <laughs> as being, you know, having, having similar um, Um, patterns uh, of behavior. Um, And so with that particular teacher archetype, you're going to always thrive in environments where knowledge is freely shared and wither in environments where it's hoarded. Mm. Uh, Likewise, 
um, you're going to be extremely excited about sharing information um, with others. Um, here's this cool new thing I read or this neat thing I saw. You know, there's, gonna, there's a lot of energy that you have when, when, when you can share something like that with someone else and even more excitement when they start taking in what you're saying and they have a point of view on it and then they reflect back to you, hey, Howie, have you ever thought about it this way? And then there's this loop going on back be between you and the other person, this feedback loop. And it's like for a teacher, it's like a kid in a candy shop. Wait a minute. You mean I just shared something with you? You reflected on it. And now we're having a real cool conversation about it. Whoa, uh -huh. life is good, right? That, that explains why I've been having a podcast for seven years that loses money. <laughs> every, well, every, every conversation I've had that conversation, that's the experience. Mm -hmm. I get to learn something. At the same time, I'm sharing you with an audience. Mm -hmm. um, I'm reflecting things back to you that maybe you haven't thought of, even though you're immersed in it. You know, yeah. you, you then feedback th things to me. Like, yeah, this is, you know, if I, could, if I could figure out a way to make money, this that's all I do. Well, you know, here's the cool part about these kinds of things. When we're, when we're looking at our archetypes and we're looking at how do we use them in a business venture, one of the things we want to understand is what we're not. Like you understand these are the things you are. You also understand, I can't figure out this, how do you make money part of this thing? Um, so find somebody who does do that, who likes to do that. Partner mm -hmm. with them and say, you know, here's this cool podcast I've got. This is the kind of stuff I'm doing with it. How would I monetize this? There are people out there who do that every day. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have to know how to do it all. But if you want to use the, the, the platform that you have to reach more people, to do more learning, to do more knowledge sharing then, you know, having a way to monetize it would be helpful mm -hmm. so that you can expand that opportunity. Good point. Okay. Uh, so uh, lesson number one, get help for the, with the archetypes where you are lacking. Yeah, where you don't have them or they're not a strength of yours, where they're not a passion of yours. It's really okay for it not to be a passion of yours, but you don't have to suffer from it because mm -hmm. there are lots of other people out there who have that and can help you, right? right. And, you know, the one thing I learned over the years of after being, you know, raised to believe that, you know, I've got to do the work and I've got to take responsibility and, you know, my success is up to me to achieve. And to, if I work hard enough at it, I will. Somewhere along the line, I started realizing, wait a minute, the people who are really successful are doing one thing I'm not doing consistently. They're asking other people for help <laughs> and they're getting it. So duh. <laughs> uh -huh. There's something to that. Maybe I'll start asking for some help from other people who know how to do stuff I don't know how to do or are more passionate about things that, you know, that I'm not passionate about because the stuff I'm passionate about, I got that down. I, I understand that well. So um, that would be my advice to you on this one, Howie. Okay, no, next, no, it start. Okay, next archetype is your transformer. Now, this transformer archetype is the archetype of change. It's the archetype that looks at chaos and looks at disorder and looks at the world upside down and says, hmm, there's some new order that's going to emerge from this. I want to be part of creating that new order. And there's a leaning into the chaos rather than a running away from it that this archetype will cause you to do. It's also the side of you that 
probably won't be happy eating meatloaf every Wednesday night. You need variety um, in your life. You need things to be evolving. To, and, and that the feeling of evolution for you is a feeling of aliveness. And when you're in situations that are terribly, terribly static, it's a joy stealer for you because of this particular archetype. So I always describe folks who are transformers. And by the way, the the icon for the transformer is really a stylized chaos curve for a reason, right? <laughs> because you guys who have this archetype, and I happen to be one of the people who does thrive in the chaos rather than the static predictability of life. Um, and, you know, I think those of us who have this archetype have had a lot of playground in the last year or two. <laughs> it's been a lot of chaos for us to sort of manage and negotiate ourselves intellectually through as well as physically through. So, so is um, that one thing I find about myself that I haven't liked is that whenever something starts working, I get bored. Absolutely. Because like, you know, like I've just, you know, baked the cake and now I'm too bored to eat it. You know, no, it, that's totally transformer. When, when you get that feeling, that's your transformer saying, okay, I need a new sandbox. Now let's go find something else. That's all upside down and figure out what we're going to do with it because that's where that particular archetype derives its joy. Yeah. So does that mean I shouldn't be like a long-term employee or like I'm always need to be on the next project? No, you need to be in a dynamic environment. That's, that's the key. So people who have this archetype need a dynamic environment to exist within because they need lots of different challenges to go out and to solve. And, you know, things that are changing that, you know, a little bit of chaos and edginess to the world is makes this particular archetype happy. So if you're in a very predictable, um, you know, sort of rote environment, it will be boring for you. And what happens when you're in those environments is you start making changes where they're not necessary just because you're bored. Uh-huh. Um, which yeah. is very <laughs> When, when Transformer doesn't have enough stuff to play with, it starts breaking stuff that's working perfectly fine. Thank you very much. But yeah, let's, yeah, let's do this differently. You know, and people are saying, but we've done it. It's working just fine. You go, yeah, I know. But, you know, let's go try this other thing. So it is an archetype that for those of us who have it, where we have to be kind of careful and we have to ask ourselves the question always, is the change we're contemplating making going to be worth the pain that it will create? because change and pain are on a continuum, right? They are connected. So once you start making changes happen, you create pain points for somebody. Somebody was fine with the way it was, or somebody thought the way it was stunk, but at least it's familiar and I know what to do with it. So don't go changing stuff now because that makes me really nervous, right? And, and so then you as a transformer start to create pain. So this is an archetype of the three that's your archetype of achievement, right? Transformers want to achieve something through the transformation process. They want to affect a change that leads to a better outcome of some sort. But with that, there is the risk, almost a guarantee of creating a pain point somewhere. The cool part is that you also have healer. And healer lets you look at the world very differently from somebody who has an archetype of achievement without this complementary archetype of the heart, which is your healer archetype. That's the archetype that allows you to look around you, look at the people that you're surrounded with and understand who's not in a good place, who's struggling today, who's you know suffering a pain point from some change that I've recommended 
be made? And how can I help navigate through that? And in the best of all worlds, when you're contemplating a change, also contemplating the pain points and having the healer side of you come in and say, okay, how would I manage this if this happened is ideal. You have that capacity within you. So your healer is, is, but your healer at the same time, it's a superpower and it really, really is because you will be able to see and feel um, uh, almost like an empath what's going on around you. The flip side of that is exactly that same thing. You will be able to see and feel things almost like an empath of the things going on around you and you will tend to absorb them. So it is an archetype that requires extreme attention to self-care and um, extreme commitment to um, exposing yourself on a routine basis to the experiences that you find nurturing, Mm. but that don't require reciprocation from you in order to receive that nurturing. Uh Uh-huh. Really, really super important. Um, so like, and- for example, like that's, that's why I would love to, you know, pay someone to give me a massage so I don't have to give them a massage back. There you go. Yeah. No, no quid pro quos for this archetype. It re- you know, you really need to just be able to take in a healing experience without the, the responsibility for um, reciprocating that healing experience. So trust me, it's better to pay for the massage <laughs> or the facial or the pedicure or the bubble bath or the walk in the woods you know, or, or the, you know, the hike in the mountains, whatever it is for you that you find nurturing to your soul is something that if you have this healer archetype, you must do with regularity. So, so can I ask a question about that? Sure. The teacher and the transformer like are totally fit. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the peg goes in the hole, the, the light flashes, the bell dings. Healer, I feel like that's sort of half true in okay. that, I don't feel like I'm an emotional empath. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I'm an intellectual empath. Mm-hmm. Like, you, know, you mentioned like Myers-Briggs, like for Myers-Briggs, I feel like I'm a, I'm a, a thinking F. Like mm-hmm. I get to feeling through thinking, like when I'm in a group and I've, you know, I've led retreats where you go really, really deep and it's always somebody else who notices, oh, that person's in pain. Like I don't, tend to notice it. I've been told on my podcast, like people will say things like, you know, someone will say, and then my dad died. And I'm like, okay. And then what happened as opposed to, oh, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Like is, can the healer be the healer without being like, maybe, you know, maybe I bullshitted on the, on the test and just like said what I thought, you know, what I thought I wanted to be like that. That doesn't feel like an exact fit. You know what I'm saying? I do understand what you're saying. And I also understand, and it's interesting, um, because I've seen this many times before, people who have high intellect, which you do, um, have had success living in the space of their head. They've had success with it, right? So you keep repeating the stuff you have had success with. But at the same time, I've watched you, I've spent time with you over, over the you know, last several months, And the one thing I can tell you is the healer comes across loud and clear every time there's, you might think that you're getting to a point of view through your brain, but you will say something always that shows tremendous heart, tremendous emotion, tremendous connection to 
um, understanding mm. that you can't get just with the intellect. So I would encourage you to share your report with others who know you well, really well and see how they have experienced you. Because it may be that when you're, when you're quote unquote on in a podcast setting and you're trying to get through material and get as much stuff in as you can in the time you have allotted for the podcast that you're, you're thinking about, well, here's the next question or here's the next thing I want to ask. And you're not pausing in that particular moment to say to the person, I'm sorry, but it doesn't mean you haven't heard them. And it doesn't mean that that death isn't imprinted on you somewhere hmm. and you're not feeling it. You okay. Know, you might be pretty good at shields a little bit, but most people who have healer aren't most people who have healer, um, feel that they have the capacity to continue to take in others pain and to work to help them through it until that person gets to a, a better place. And they tend to feel that they can continue to do that indefinitely, you know, without pause, without taking a break from it or that, yeah, it was a tough conversation that I had with Joe the other day, you know, when he was talking about, you know, the fact that his dad died, but you know, I'm okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. that really was Joe's issue, not recognizing that you took all that in. And for you, it brought up memories of when your dad died and you're processing that too. And, you know, you, you've got, you've got that pain body that is kind of hanging on to you, kind of like cotton balls would be on Velcro clothing, right? As I say that, you know, healers dress in Velcro and they walk through fully blooming cotton fields every day and back through those cotton fields before they come home at night. And, you know, by the end of the week, all those little nice fluffy cotton balls feel like boulders. Um, So, so this self-care piece is extremely critical because if you were to think about driving at 90 miles an hour and, and being headed towards a brick wall, most of us would try to put our brakes on before we hit the wall. The healer doesn't recognize how fast the wall is approaching And when you look down, there's no skid marks. There's been no attempt to stop because they didn't realize how fast it was coming at them. So without the discipline and the practice of self-care, you know, those of us who have this archetype can kind of get ourselves in trouble. Mm. At the same time, it can be a superpower when we take care of it. Cool. Make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Okay. So I, you know, I, I gave you the information on the, each of the archetypes here, you know, there's a general description in the report and then information that talks about the strengths of that archetype characteristically, the vulnerabilities of that archetype. And we give some example areas of where somebody with that archetype would naturally thrive, but those areas are not meant to be an exhaustive list. And if your job isn't on there, it means like somehow you're mismatched. It's not the case at all. It's just meant to be illustrative. Mm -hmm. Um, But I always suggest, Howie, that you print out the report, read through it carefully and feel comfortable about marking it up. You know, put a check mark next to everything that resonates as like, yep, that's me or yep, just did that yesterday. Um, And especially with the strengths and the vulnerabilities, I would look at them and say, okay, what have I done in the last six months that is representative of any of these strengths? Where in the last six months have any of these vulnerabilities shown up? And then actually write down the situation, write down the vulnerability in the situation, write down the strength in the situation. What brain science tells us is that that allows us then to begin to create mental tags. 
And mental, creating those mental tags is, is the first step to developing mastery over these passions. Because if you can recognize a situation that's going to allow you to use one of your strengths of your passions, then you can run towards it. If you recognize in advance that you're entering into a situation that can trigger a vulnerability, it also informs you. You can, you can respond to that situation differently than you might have otherwise. Okay? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. This particular graph is you at work. And so not for nothing, you're doing pretty well, right? So the way to interpret this graph, once again, is the gray graph that you see in the background that looks like peaks and valleys of a mountain range. That's your passion graph that we were just looking at. We've just interpreted for you in a different format. The columns here are representative of the degree to which you demonstrate stylistic behaviors associated with each of the 10 archetypes. The bars that are in color are the ones that you're demonstrating the most often in the work setting. But here's the deal. Any place you see a bar with color in it that also has a dot with color above it means that you're demonstrating a stylistic behavior that matches a passion that you carry. So you're demonstrating teacher at work and you have teacher. You're demonstrating healer at work and you have healer. But look, you're not demonstrating as much transformer at work right now as you are altruist. So Mm -hmm. altruist is your third operating style in the work setting. So you could ask the question, gee, are there things I can do that would allow me to bring more of this transformer to what I'm doing? And would that make it feel more fulfilling? But you're in a place where at least two of your three are being expressed at work. So this this means you're doing you, right? You're showing up as authentically as you feel you can in the work setting using these two particular archetypes, the question would be, is there room to use transformer? Hmm. And would that feel more fun to you even than what you're doing right now? Uh So I'm trying to feel like, what what might that look like operationalized? Um, For, for some people, it might say, say um, be, be a situation where they say to their manager, you know, we're doing this large scale change project around, you know, the development of this particular product. I'd, I'd love to be, have an opportunity to be on the team. Or you might say, you know, I'm looking at the way this particular process has been working and I think it's really broken. I want to take a, you know, wholesale reexamination of this mm-hmm. and come up with a new way. Right. So, so part of that, you know, so um, a lot of what I'm doing right now is coaching mm-hmm. and teacher and transformer both feel very rel, rel and certainly healer. They all feel like they're intrinsic to the type of coaching I'm doing. Right. But like one of my tensions is I want to be a really good coach, which means I want to do best practices mm-hmm. and I want to know what the research is. And as soon as I'm doing that, I'm like, I wonder if I try this. I want, I w- I'd love to try that. So I'm constantly wanting to tweak what's working. Mm-hmm. And as an individual coach, I don't, I, I don't collect good data. It's mm-hmm. not like I can do a study. It's like, you know, oh, I did this. The person liked it. Like, it's very untrustworthy. <laughs> if I, if I, you know, if I do something and you like it and you say it helps you, like, that's, that's a data point. There's an anecdote. But there's very little that I would, you know, I wouldn't write a book about it. Mm-hmm. Say, this is how everyone should coach now. So I feel I feel a tension between wanting to be a transformer, like blowing up my own coaching because of another thought I've had or, hey, this would be cool. Okay. So there's another way to look at that transformer. And it's the way that I look at it in the work that I do. For me, 
the transformation isn't me changing things. It's me doing things that help another person achieve the change they want. Mm-hmm. Okay. I get to put transformation into practice through others, right? Through their experiences. So if you were to examine the work that you do and ask yourself the question, am I the catalyst for transformation in this individual, in the way in which I'm working with that individual, that should lead you to an answer. And if the answer is yes, then you're, you're going to start seeing that, hey, I actually am using Transformer a lot more than I suspect that I am. It's, it's, it's the way in which I'm looking at the application of that archetype that might be at issue and not necessarily about, gee, every single time I get interested in another way of coaching, I'm going to just go practice that on someone, even if what I'm doing is working. If what you're doing is working, maybe leaning into that will allow greater transformation for the individual to be experienced. Mm. So part of the archetype isn't just the objective reality, but it's your interpretation of how you're doing fills or informs or expresses that archetype. Exactly. Exactly. You know, how I, how I do healer today could look very different from how I do healer tomorrow, from how, how I do builder on the third day. Mm. And, And that's, that's actually for me, one of the really cool parts of, of understanding this, because if, if you remember what I said in the beginning of our conversation, and that is that passion and purpose are, are actually connected and that we're actually measuring the passions that emanate from the deeper purpose that drives you. And that leads you to the understanding that this thing called purpose isn't a one and done thing, right? I always make the joke that, you know, once you have raised the children and they're grown and married and you've retired and the dog has died, your life is not finished, right? You know, you're, you're, you're at a new phase of it, but it's not over. And so when I think about the expression of purpose, there are myriad ways in which you might have a purpose in life that gets expressed um, in a hundred different ways throughout the course of your lifetime. It's not a like one thing you have to go do. And once you've done that, you're finished. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at these passions, the expression of them can vary, right? In, in, in the way in which you view yourself as having um, demonstrated that particular passion. Sometimes it's very overt. Yep. Taking on this large scale change project. I'm going to lead it by gosh. I'm going to make this thing happen. I'm at the helm of it. I'm making all the decisions associated with what exactly we're going to do. And there is an end date by which this change is going to be made. And I can point to it because here it is. And this is how everything's different versus looking at a client as a large scale change project, except you're not at the helm. They are. Mm. What are the, what is the support? What is the guidance? What is the, the advice that you need to give them in order to enable them to navigate this change that they're seeking to make in their own lives? right? That's you playing transformer, but it's not you at the helm. It's the client at the helm and you being, you know, the whisperer Mm. that helps them understand what next step might be right for them. Uh Another another thing I'm thinking about in my own coaching is like, I, I train coaches. I've trained, you know, a hundred, 150 coaches and I tell them like coach like yourself, don't coach like me. Cause there's always a tendency when you see the teacher do something like, Oh, that was a magic trick. I want to be like that. Right. And yet I think even as I've said that, I think I've had certain assumptions about what's good coaching 
based on my transformer. Like I'm always happy to throw a little bit of a grenade into someone's life, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm, I'm pretty good at figuring out what's a flesh wound rather than a death blow. Right. Something, so, you know, to, um, but I'm very comfortable taking people into pain, mm-hmm. to suffering, into sorrow, into loss. Because you have healer. I, because you have healer. Ah. Healer lets you hold the space for that. That's why you're comfortable with that. Well, I, I know I can band it, put a bandage on it. Can, not more than bandage it. You can help them get to the other side of it. Hmm. So you're comfortable with those tensions together. So it'd be really interesting to do this for all the people I've trained as coaches because I bet there's I bet there's people who are I mean you and I are the same except I'm teacher you're builder right like and to see like that little sh- how you know that one third of a shift Makes means you're good. trying to build a very different business than me mm-hmm. and if I try to say oh I really um, am jealous of what Elena's doing I want to do that that would be a disaster absolutely it's not something that would necessarily make you happy I mean at the end of the day. When we, when we show up as our most authentic selves, I think we do our best work in the world and we're, we're positioned to accomplish, you know, our, our greatest results. And so I, I think that leaning into who we are allows us to show up for our clients and, you know, our, our companies, whoever, our family members, our friends as our best selves. And that's when we're in our, in our power when we do our best work. Right. A lot of people who listen to this podcast are activists of one sort or another around health, around animal welfare, animal rights, uh, environment. Mm-hmm. Do these passions show up in, in sort of the civic work we do? Oh, they show up everywhere. Your passions are your passions in all aspects of your life. There's nothing I'm telling you about today as it relates to, you know, we, we talked a lot about the work environment, but there's nothing I'm telling you about you in the work environment that doesn't apply to you everywhere else in your life. And if you, you sit down for half a minute, I know the way your brain works, half a minute is all it will take for you. You'll, you'll be able to see where you're expressing these passions in your personal life and in relationships and how it's showing up for you. And even the tensions in relationships that show up. You know, I'll see people that are in long-term relationships with one another. Some of them married where, you know, the one, one of them will be a transformer and the other one won't and drives the other one crazy because they always want to change something. And you're like, like, why do we have to, ch-? like, this is fine. Why do we, you know, yeah, but this would be so cool if we did this, that, and the other, wouldn't it be fun? And you're like, no, not really. It just sounds like work to me. Well, <laughs> it feels like my wife and I are very similar. In, in our profile, which mm-hmm. I think leads to the kind of feedback you get when you play an electric guitar in front of a speaker. Like you think, oh, that's great. We're compatible. And then, like, like we come home and the other one has rearranged the furniture again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like maybe we need a little more of whatever the opposite of transformer is. Well, sometimes you need, you know, the capacity to agree that we've made enough changes and we're going to take a little hiatus from them for a minute, you know, or, um, you, you know, when you're involved with somebody else who has a similar archetype to you, you can always, it, 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 you can actually um, cancel each other if you're not careful, you know, with it, because if I'm a builder and I'm, and I'm living with somebody who's a builder, you know, we both want to be in charge. <laughs> Right. We, we both have the right answer. Absolutely. The right answer. You know, and we both know exactly what to do. So you should listen to me. Right? 
But it means that we also, with those that, that similar archetype, could take the attitude of, well, you're a builder, I'm a builder. Builders tend to think of each other as people who get stuff done. So that means there's a fair amount of trust I can place in you that you're going to have, you're going to think about this and you're not going to lead us into a, you know, down a dark alley. Um, so maybe I, maybe there's some things I can entrust you to handle and some things you can entrust me to handle and know that we're going to be okay. Mm. So that no, 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 neither person feels like they're suppressed in any way in the relationship, but they appreciate um, where, where they have similarities and how those similarities can be positive or can exacerbate some of the vulnerabilities associated with that passion mm. and how someone else's archetypes might be different from yours within, within their cluster. And it explains a lot about why they do the things they do. So instead of being a point of frustration, you go, ah, okay, I get it. She was just building, being conceiver again, or she was just being discoverer again. Mm. I mean, I once, um, dated a guy who was definitely a discoverer. And if I mentioned something like, I'm thinking about maybe I'm going to get a new car this year. He would go out and go out and do like extensive research on all these vehicles and you know, come back to me with after two weeks of research to say, well, I think the best car is X. Oh, I do that. Yeah. But then if I said, well, that's, that's a learned skill that you do. Right. But this person, oh, no, it's, it's, it's an impulse. Yeah. as an absolute pat. Well, that, because that was a knowledge thing, right. You're it, it, it's, it's the teacher looking for the knowledge in his case. It's, I know that the right answer is out there somewhere. And if I lift up enough rocks, I'm going to find it. He, he could go down into a tunnel, you know, for days, you know, 18. Yeah, no, I just, I just want to go deep enough to, to, to bring you, you know, to, to be the cat that brings you a mouse. Right. Right. Now when, you know, he wanted to like examine everything and, you know, my way of, it, of car shopping is, let's go out and drive some cars and see what feels cool. Like, okay, we're going to go try this. And like, it's sort of in this price range. And is it a sedan or not, or a coupe, you know, SUV, like let's get it in a truck, like pick one of those general categories and then let's go drive a bunch of them and figure it out. Mm. You know? And if I said something like, yeah, I was thinking about that. I know I said two weeks ago, I was thinking about buying a new car, but I think I'm going to wait another year. Talk about somebody who was crestfallen. Oh, because he'd done all this research that I didn't ask him to do, but he went into, you know, full-blown discoverer mode and was coming back to me with, you know, a notebook full of stuff that he'd examined. And I'm like, I'm a builder. I, I think in bullet points. I don't need all that stuff. <laughs> just get, you know, let's just, let's just go out and look at some cars. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you convinced me that this, this kind of self-knowledge is really important at work, in interpersonal, in in the things we want to accomplish in the world and maybe unrelated to work. Is is there a public portal for people to do this work? Do they just have to hire you as a corporate consultant? How well this lovely report that you have, which is quite extensive and some there's pieces of it we haven't even talked about yet, is only available through uh, the professional tool, which which is um something that I offer through my business and through um, the, the um, very select number of coaches that I have trained in the interpretation of this tool. A few years ago, um, I felt like, you know, there's going to be some people that are in, not in organizations that would like to at least know something about their passions. So I, um, I created a, what I'll call a public website 
um, called mypassionality.com, mypassionality.com. And don't forget the my, because there's only, you know, two letters between us and a porn site. So mypassionality.com. And, um, and there you can purchase um, a code to complete, you know, a very abbreviated version of the passion profiler tool. So the passion profiler light, so to speak. And that will give you a, a, a short report that will tell you what you know, what your top three are archetypes are and give you a little bit of information about them, but not nearly the extensive version of this tool that you see here. Gotcha. What, how does that compare with what you and I talked about? Is that mostly the same information that we should? Not really. It will tell you what your top three archetypes are. It'll give you a little bit of information on the strengths and vulnerabilities of those. Um, but it won't tell you which ones you're using. It won't get into um, your level of affiliation with your work. It won't get into the, what we see here on the screen, your, your capacity for reflection, both in, in life reflection and work-related reflection. Um, and it doesn't get into um, where you sit um, on the knowledge cycle, which is, which is a, indicative of your ability to contribute to the generation and utilization of knowledge when you're working with a team or Do you have a minute to, to go over that with me because that looked really cool yeah yeah so um what this model is um is illustrating are the modes of influence that a person's passions can have on the way um they participate in the generation of knowledge or the utilization of knowledge within an organizational setting or on a team. And there really are five modes of influence that passion can have on knowledge. There are archetypes whose focus is on creating new knowledge or new artistic representations of knowledge. In the case of the creator, it's the new artistic representation of a concept that I have in mind. In the case of the conceiver, it's about new ideas, out-of-the-box thinking, pushing the edges of, of boundary. Mm -hmm. And there are archetypes that focus on processing knowledge. I'm really interested in understanding the details of this knowledge or validating this knowledge. So in the case of the discoverer, it's going out and searching for truth, looking for um, benchmarks that are out there. Has anybody tried this idea before? How did it work out? What did they learn from it? What kind of data and information can I collect from that experience? The processor says, give me the data. I'm all about taking the chaos of information and putting some swim lane around it and helping to package the data in a way that makes it more readily utilizable by others and helps us understand this knowledge or this direction that we think we're going to be taking. Then there are archetypes whose focus is on sharing and assimilating knowledge. And that's where you come in. When new knowledge comes your way, your instinct is how do I share this with others? Or how do I help them learn it? Or how do, how do I help them learn what they need to learn in order to utilize it? That's where your teacher archetype comes in. Other, the other archetype sitting next to you there is the connector. The connector is always interested in figuring out how do I seed this knowledge across the organization? How do I build the relationships that allow me to transfer the knowledge from person to person to person to person? so that we can do something with it organizationally, culturally. Then there are archetypes whose focus is on the um, impact that knowledge is going to have either broadly on society or on individuals specifically. And they worry about disseminating support to manage that impact so that the impact is as positive as it can be. So in the case of the altruist, 
This is an archetype that's worried about the decisions made from the knowledge that the organization has generated and how it's going to impact the promise of the brand, the standing in the community, the standing in the industry. You know, are we showing up being who we say we want to be? Are the decisions we're making in alignment with the higher good? And if not, how do we support those individuals, those groups that we might be disenfranchising by the actions that we've taken? Or how do we push back at the organization and say, no, we said we stand for X, we're doing Y. Mm. You need to rethink this. The healer, again, where you live, is worried about how the knowledge or decisions made from it impact an individual. Is it creating a pain point for Joe and or Sally or Sam, and how do I help them navigate through that pain point to get to a better place? You take on that responsibility on a very personal level when you have a healer archetype. And then finally, on the final side of the cycle, there are archetypes whose focus is on applying knowledge to either make a change in the case of the transformer or to go out and build something new, accomplish some big goal, preferably one that hasn't been accomplished before. And that's where the builder comes in. So instinctively, when new knowledge comes towards a transformer, the transformer is like, let's go do something. Let's go make, let's go change something. We got this stuff. We know what to do now. Here's what we're going to go accomplish. So you essentially, Howie, live on three sides of the knowledge cycle, which is unusual. Most people live on two. You live here and share and assimilate with your teacher and disseminate with your healer and then apply with your transformer. So what you look at, as we were talking about earlier, is what's the stuff I'm not? And if I'm trying to accomplish something, who might I need to bring into the party who's got some passions that I don't have because they're going to be able to look at things differently than I do or be engaged in, in, uh, with those things more readily than I will be because that's their natural passion. Well, it's funny because I was going to be a professor until I, until I went to grad school and realized that what professors actually do is not teach but research. And I'm like, eh, like, I get that that's a good thing. Right. I get I'd be pretty good at it, but eh. Well, if you were discovered, you'd have felt differently about it because that's all about research, right? It's mm -hmm. all about exploring, right? The teacher in you is what would lead you to the professor job because I get to actually teach. And yeah. that would have been something you'd find fun to do. So does that make sense? Yep. Very, very cool. Um, so mypassionality.com, unless you prefer porn, in which case you leave out the my. <laughs> I've never been to passionality.com, so I can't speak to its quality. I stumbled across it when I was setting up the URL. I was like, whoops, okay, we better fix this one. <laughs> uh, I remember in back, back in the day when, when browsers had uh, no restrictions on pop-ups, I was trying to get my son a baseball glove at Dick's Sporting Goods, and I just went to Dick's and... <laughs> Oh, that's the problem. <laughs> that was an education for both of us. <laughs> MyPassionality.com. Passionality.com. Yep. Um, and for for um, people who are interested in your um, consulting and corporate work, where the are they going? Consulting and the corporate work, which is deep work with individuals and teams and leaders. That is quite transformational. And that does make a huge difference in the organization's ability to accomplish its goals, both today and, and going forward. Um, I would suggest people go to um, thepurposelink.com, thepurposelink.com. The name of my corporate uh, company is Purpose Linked Consulting. Uh, purposelink.com. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Presumably purposelink.com is not a porn site, but uh, just, <laughs> add, add the, just in case. Let's hope not, but choose the purposelink.com. And are you st- um, I'm imagining there's going to be people listening to this go, boy, I would really like to be able to deliver this stuff. Are you still training some coaches? Um, we're at a, hi- a hi- blah, sorry, hiatus from that right now, trying to sort out what we're going to do with this next evolution, but we probably will be doing some more of that come the fall, or at least making some decisions around it, um, because this is, this is important work. Um, as, as you can see, and it can be very powerful work, very yeah. transformational work for folks. So um, I'm always interested in, in meeting um, coaches who really can, can take this work from that perspective and deliver it in a meaningful way to their clients. Great. Great. So do, do you have, is there a newsletter or people social? Like how can people sort of stay in touch, do something now and just stay in touch with you? Well, I write a monthly article on smart, in smart grief on leadership. So smart grief. Yeah. So if you Google, um, Elena loves smart grief, you'll, they'll, it'll send you right to my, um, list. I'll add that to the show notes list of articles. Um, and, um, obviously contacting me through either of the websites for more information, or if you want to be added to newsletters, we do periodic quarterly newsletters. So I can obviously make that connection for folks if they'd like to be added. Great. Well, Elena Love, thank you so much, first of all, for uh, enlightening me on me. <laughs> it was a pleasure. And fun to do. And thank you for taking the time today and for all this amazing work you, you're putting out into the world. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Howie. This was a lot of fun. Me too. <laughs> all right. Have a super rest of your day. You too. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye. All right. What did you think? Was that helpful? Does it help you to think about what your own passions are on that uh, matrix? By the way, if you are only listening to this audio, you should check out the video on YouTube and you can find that link at plantyourself.com slash four seven four because we do look at something. We share my screen to see or uh, Elena's screen actually to see what the profiler says. So I think that will be very helpful if specifically if you're also a visual as well as an auditory learner. All right. So what's going on in movement news? I'm doing this whole new set of morning exercises that hurt like hell, kind of. I mean, not they don't hurt, but they're you know very challenging and I feel sorry for myself and I get sore and they only take about 12 minutes. But they're really designed to open up my hips so that I'm better balanced and so that I can run well by actually having my hips free to raise my knees up more when I do uh, go running. And I've also shifted my meditation from a 20 minute sitting meditation to a 30 minute walking meditation, partly because I wanted to change it up and feel good about you know, being flexible as opposed to, oh, my gosh, I'm doing this 20 minute meditation. I can never change it again for the rest of my life because I don't want it to fail and go back to not meditating. So it feels good to um, to embrace the fear and the flexibility that that entails to shift it up. Also, because I want to have more energy during the day. And I've been um, listening to uh, Andrew Huberman's Huberman Lab podcast, which I find really useful. And he talks about the importance of morning sunlight. And so if I meditate for 20 minutes a day, I can sort of miss out on that window of, of watching the sunrise. And, you know, walking meditation is, can be just as good and challenging for our attentional system, 
for appreciating the world around us. It's actually easier to, you know, say hi to all the trees and blades of grass. And when people drive on the road to send them, you know, love and compassion and uh, empathy for whatever they're going through. Um, so that's uh, that's been what's been going on with movement. And the, the running is, of course, towards an eye towards getting me faster so that I can be a better ultimate Frisbee player. Uh, we have the next tournament, um, assuming the Delta variant doesn't mess everything up for us in uh, the first weekend in November in Sarasota, Florida. So if you're down there, come visit. Bring me lunch. <laughs> Plant based, of course, please. In garden news, um, I got a new hobby, which is um, cutting the flowers off the basil plants. So they put all their energy into leaves as opposed to reproduction. So um, every other day I'd go through half of them um, and it's kind of fun. And I always end up smelling like, uh, you know, pesto or caprese salad when I'm when I'm done. Um, blueberries still going strong, still getting maybe a gallon, eh, half a gallon a day. But there we can see them starting to to come to an end. And that's even with sharing some with the birds. The other thing that's now in, um, in in ripeness, ripening are the elderberries. We have them all over the property. We have two stands that we planted. And frankly, the, the healthiest ones are the volunteers just sort of randomly all over the place. The berries are turning purple and they make uh, really good medicines. Uh, I don't I don't know the details of like antiviral, antibacterial, antifungal, whatever. But uh, you know, highly touted and uh, they're fun. They're teeny little berries and these big umbles and they're great, uh, great berries in my humble opinion. Sorry about that. All right. I think that's it for that. So um, let's talk about thanks. All right. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenour.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, 
for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.